If you have seen the show that Robin Leach hosts on television called Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, or as he says, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, there's one thread that ties every single story together every week, and that is success. In fact, Robin Leach uses that word quite a bit. How successful this person is, the homes that that person owns, on and on and on. He's so successful, he's finally made it. And that seems to be the American dream, success. There's TV shows about success, there's success seminars, books on success. All of it is feeding that craving that we have to be more successful than somebody else. In fact, I grew up in a home that bred success. My dad says, Your kid, you kids are to be successful. I want you to go through high school. I want you to go to college. I want you to learn how to be a public speaker. And I want you to learn how to play golf. You need to be successful. And he had his reasons for them. My wife grew up in a home that also pushed that kind of success. Her father is a doctor and a lawyer. Written books on how to make your dreams come true. Just the whole success thing. Now, in chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, God uses the word success as applied to a believer. He says in verse 7, to be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, then you will have good success. These verses, along with other verses, have been used by certain Christians, even a few of them may be well-meaning Christians, but they have developed their success in life packets and their success laws and their prosperity booklets. Because God wants you to have success. But we need to distinguish, folks, the difference between worldly success and what God calls success. Now, I looked up in Webster's Dictionary, and old Merriam-Webster has this definition of success. And a lot of us buy into it. Success is a favored or desired outcome, the attainment of wealth or prominence. That's what we think of in terms of success. Wealth. Or prominence. Now you compare that with the word that we just read in verse 8. It's a Hebrew word, sakal. And it means something different than just prominence or wealth. It means the process of thinking through a complex arrangement of thoughts that results in wise dealings. That's the definition in that verse of success. And it has been translated in other translations to act wisely. It's the ability to look back at your life and to say, I made the right choices. I went the right direction. Every turn I did what God wanted me to do, even though I had to think through the complex arrangements of thoughts, and I had to make all of these decisions, I know now that I went the right way. That is success, biblically. And it is not always making choices that gives you financial profit. And what is unfortunate is there are many people who are 
successful in worldly values, but spiritually they are bankrupt. And they have no idea what success is, even though they're reading their success law packets from this person or that person. Spiritual success is the ability to act wisely. Listen to what Revelation chapter 3 says. Jesus is speaking to the church of Laodicea. Now listen closely. Because you say, I am rich, I have become wealthy, I have need of nothing. They're saying, we are successful. And that's from a worldly perspective. Jesus goes on, but you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. There are people who are climbing the ladder of success, but the ladder is leaning against the wrong wall. You have a need to be successful, but the right kind of success. There's nothing wrong with wealth in and of itself. There's nothing wrong with enjoying nice things, but there are some people who have nice homes, nice things, nice jobs, a lot of income, but are bankrupt in the things that are really important. Things that are really important. Now, as we look at Joshua chapter 1, I want you to look at two basic things. First of all, the promises of God. God makes some incredible promises to this guy and to the children of Israel. And then after looking at the promises, let's look at how to possess those promises. And there's a big difference, as we're going to see. Look at verse 1 through 6. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise and go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread, I have given you, as I said to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and of good courage, for to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. God had promised an incredible piece of real estate to the children of Israel. He made a promise to Abraham, made the same promise to his son Isaac, made the same promise to his son Jacob, made the same promise to the twelve descendants and the tribes, made the same promise to Moses. Moses is dead, and the same promise applies to Joshua. It's a piece of real estate that according to God's measurements in these verses is some 300,000 square miles. God defines the borders. It's from the southern desert. You could follow the land of Israel all the way down. To the northern border being the mountains of Lebanon. On the west, it would be the Mediterranean. On the east, it would be the Euphrates River by the Persian Gulf, modern-day Iraq and Iran. I know that wouldn't settle well with a lot of people if they tried to negotiate that today. That's the land deal. 
This is the land. These are my promises. You're going to go in and possess it. Now, the land of Canaan that God was giving to them represents something spiritually for us. It's far more than just a land deal. Remember how we talked about Egypt representing something? That it represents bondage and sin that we were delivered out of by the blood of Jesus Christ? And how that the wilderness experience represents something to us? A life of wandering, carnality, disobedience, rebellion. Well, the land of Canaan crossing over the Jordan into a new land also represents something. Unfortunately, we have been sidetracked from its real meaning by some well-meaning hymns. Hymns have depicted crossing the Jordan and going into the promised land as once we die, we cross over and we're in heaven. And so we have beautiful songs that miss the meaning, but they're beautiful nonetheless, like Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. It's a great song. It just happens to be incorrect theologically. When I look over Jordan coming for to carry me home, I see a band of angels coming for to carry me home. I'm going to cross this Jordan. I'm going to die. I'm going to go to heaven. The song's a beautiful depiction of that. The only problem is that is not what Canaan represents to us. Because you have a problem if you try to fit that kind of representation into the story. The first thing that Joshua and the children of Israel meet once they get over into the land are enemies, and they fight battles. And surely that cannot represent heaven. I am not looking forward to entering into the gates of heaven having to do some battles. That's history for me. It's over with. There's nothing more to conquer once I cross over into the land of heaven. But Canaan represents a victorious Christian living now. The difference between the wilderness and the new land of Canaan is the difference between rebellion and carnality and an obedient, victory-filled life in Jesus Christ. That is the meaning of it. You're going to cross over the land that I am going to give to you. When God made these promises to Joshua and the children of Israel, He first of all promised it as a process. It's not written here, but let me read something to you out of the book of Exodus, where God promises the children of Israel the same piece of real estate. But listen how he puts it. He says this, I will not drive out your enemies from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beast of the field become too numerous for you. But little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and you inherit the land. I'm giving you this piece of real estate, but it's not going to be all at once. You're not going to go in and say, here we are, Canaanites, get lost. It won't work that way. I will give you the land little by little, portion of it at a time. Now, what that did is cause these children of Israel to become dependent upon God. Because they won the victory one battle at a time. First there was Jericho. Then there was Ai. Then there were other cities and they had to go through all of the land. It didn't happen all at once. It didn't happen in one year. 
Little by little, God gave them what He promised them He would. Now there's a correlation to our spiritual growth. Spiritual maturity is not instant. You don't just grow all at once and become a spiritual giant. You do it little by little. A piece at a time. Victory is ours. God says, here's the land. This is what I promise for you. Here is the mature Christian life that I've got for you. But you can't expect it to happen all at once. That shouldn't be an excuse for us not to grow. It should simply be an encouragement for us not to expect it to happen all at once. Folks, you cannot just claim victory over every malady in your life. You can't just go be delivered and have every problem taken out. It's a process. The Christian life is not a light switch. It's a process. You grow into it. There's no such thing as instant sanctification. I know we wish there were. There are a lot of us that would love to skip the valleys altogether, right? We just want mountain peak experience after mountain peak after mountain peak. And as soon as the Lord starts leading us into a valley to grow, we go, no, Lord, please just just airlift me from peak to peak. That's the way I want to live my life. I'll just claim the victory on every single experience. You cannot say magic words. You cannot go into a meeting and walk out a spiritual giant. You grow into it. It's little by little. And that should be an encouragement to us. Then, the land was promised to the children of Israel as a gift. Not only as a process. Look at verse 3. Every place the sole of your foot shall tread upon, I, and notice, have given you. Past tense. I have given you, as I said to Moses. It's a gift. I'm giving it to you. The children of Israel didn't deserve it. They weren't just nice people who worked real hard for 40 years in the wilderness to deserve this land. They were complainers. They were adulterers. They were idolaters. They worshipped a golden calf. They didn't deserve anything. It was a gift. They couldn't say, God, I've been good now for 40 years. Give me this land. Forget it. It was a gift. Even as our salvation is a free gift. The Bible says, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, not your goodness, but according to His mercy, He has saved us. Paul tells us, by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. If you put in a hard day at work, you go back the next day and work, and you put in a hard two weeks worth of work, and you come to the end of two weeks, come to your boss, and your boss hands you a paycheck. Do you get down on your knees and go, oh, thank you? No. Why? Because you've earned it. It's not a gift. You worked for it. It's your paycheck. However, if he tagged a bonus onto that paycheck, credible sum of money, and maybe he put a little note on top of that that said, you know, you've been slacking off a lot lately in your job. 
but I love you. Here's a bonus. Then you probably should respond to that kind of miracle and fall on your knees and go, oh, thank you. You've never found a boss better than that. What we have in the Lord is a free gift. The problem comes is when you and I start thinking we deserve it. We don't. We're probably in the same shape as the children of Israel, wandering, groping for light, in total darkness. And he says, here's the land I've promised I'm going to give it to you. Not only that, but if you look down at the next verse, God made this promise and he promised his power to go along with it and his presence. Look at verse five. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Another translation says, I will not drop you or abandon you. Like a little child, I'm not going to walk along and then drop you on the ground or leave you on a doorstep and forget about you. I won't abandon you. As I was with Moses, Joshua, I will be with you. I'm making the promise of the land, but not only am I giving you the land, I'm giving you me. I'm going to hang out with you. I'll be with you. I'll never forsake you. Which was quite a promise for Joshua because he had quite a task ahead of him. He was going into a hostile land. It had hills and valleys. It was difficult to maneuver militarily. There were giants in the land, as you recall from reading Exodus. There were fortified cities with walls, formidable enemies. And so for God to say, Josh, I'm going to be with you. Hang in there. I won't drop you. was quite an encouragement. As Martin Luther used to say, one plus God equals a majority. Joshua needed to hear that kind of a promise from the Lord. Okay. We've basically covered the promises of God. You're going into a new land. I'll give it to you. Free gift. Not because you deserve it. It'll be little by little. You'll grow into it. You'll take it. I'll go with you. I won't drop you. I won't abandon you. Aren't those wonderful promises? Talk about the sweet smell of success. We just read about it. This is what I'm going to do for you. These are my promises. Now I want to say this. So what? Big deal. The promises of God that He gives to them or gives to us are absolutely, totally useless if they just sit on the page as a promise. If they are just promises and we don't do something with those promises, they are just words on a page and they won't help us one bit. And now comes the next part. It's all part of what we're about to read. God makes promises. And then he shows Joshua that he must possess those promises. There's a big difference between those two folks. You see... God wants us to take His promises and to stand on the promises. But there are a lot of Christians who just sit on the premises. They don't do anything with them. And in the next several verses, God gives Joshua keys to spiritual success. And there's four of them. Four keys to spiritual success. The first one is cooperation. Cooperation. 
Listen to what Isaiah writes. I'll just quote it to you. Remember that promise that you are so familiar with in Isaiah? In fact, you probably quote it to unbelievers. Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, I'll make them white as wool, white as snow. What a beautiful promise that is. You know what it says right after that, though? If you are willing and obedient, you will eat of the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. God makes a beautiful promise, but then he says, if you do it. Here's all that I've given unto you. Now, I do realize there's a difference between conditional promises or conditional covenants and unconditional covenants. But you find, by and large, that almost every promise God makes has a condition. Even if it means you just have to believe Him. That's the condition. God makes the promises, but it takes cooperation. There's always two parts. There's God's part and there's man's part. Now, I've noticed something over the years in in preaching messages and sermons. I've noticed that there's basically two camps of people. One camp of people love and thrive on hearing messages all about God's part. Talk about God's grace, God's mercy. Without me, you can do nothing. And they say, great sermon. I love hearing that. Ah, it's powerful, beautiful, God's part, God's part, God's part. There's another camp who loves hearing about men's part all the time. Determination, commitment. And they feel if guilt hasn't been inflicted on them somehow that morning that it wasn't a powerful message. And they would rather hear about what I must do. Now the sad part is that both groups are out of balance alone. Because the truth is, you need both God's part and man's part. Yes, man's part has been overemphasized for too long. What you should do for God. And yes, man should always respond to what God has done. But don't become imbalanced that you only love to hear about the grace and mercy of God or you only love to hear about commitment and determination and so forth. You need both. There is God's portion God's promises, and then it takes a cooperation. Because as you follow this all the way through in what we are reading, God makes the promise of the land, and then God tells them the keys to spiritual success. And notice at verse 8, it says, The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You will meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then, and you should underline that, For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. It doesn't happen automatically. It takes cooperation. Now, what is the cooperation for the children of Israel? Verse 3. Look at it. Every place the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I said to Moses. See the promise and the condition, the cooperation? I've given you, past tense. But it's every place the sole of your foot treads. Joshua, I've given you the land, but you've got to walk in it. You can't just stand there and go, hmm, beautiful land, look at it. I can picture condominiums there and I can picture... Nope. You've got to walk in the land. That's the cooperation. You've got to set your foot in it. 
Now that's exactly why the first generation of Israelites died in the desert, wasn't it? Remember 40 years before? Joshua and Caleb went into the land with the ten other spies, came back and said, the land is good. Let's go for it. And the other ten said, no, there's giants in the land. And the whole group of Israel complained and did not believe God. They all died in the wilderness. Because they didn't go in and possess what God promised already to give them. That's cooperation. I want you to turn to the New Testament book of Second Peter for just a moment. I want you to look at something. I want you to see this same principle in the New Testament. Second Peter chapter 1. In verse 2, Peter says, grace. Oh, I love it. And peace, yeah, be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. Now listen to the verses that describe all that God has done for you. As His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. God has given you all the power that you need and all the promises that you need. He uses those two words in those verses. Peter is saying, every single thing you need to grow, God has given it to you. You don't have to be a weak Christian. You don't have to be immature. You don't have to be downtrodden and fearful any longer. Every single thing you need, God has given you the power and the promises that you have it all. You can grow as much as you want to in the Lord. We think, wow, that's great. What do I do about it? Do I just sing about it? Do I just underline the promises? Now look at verse 5. There's a list of additives. For this very reason... Giving all diligence add to your faith, virtue and virtue knowledge and knowledge self-control and on and on and on. This is what God has promised. Now here's a list of additives to supercharge your faith or to spice up your walk with the Lord. You know, you can sit down at a meal and, and you can cook food, cook broccoli or chicken. Those two items in and of themselves, are pretty bland tasting. You usually add spices to them, or green chili, right? Give it some oomph, some gusto. Because eating to you and to me is more than just stuffing necessary items down our throat. We want it to taste good in the process. And so we have additives that we put in the food, and it spices it up. And we think, what a great meal. So here's a list of additives. Here's the power. Here's the promises. But it says in verse 5, for this reason, giving all diligence. The New English Bible says, try your hardest. Now please don't confuse this. He's not talking about your being saved by works. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you are saved. But God isn't satisfied with that. He's given you promises of a land of Canaan that flows with milk and honey, abundant life. Not just eternal life, life to the full. 
And he says, this is what I've given you. This is what I promised you. Here's my power, a new nature. Now you exert yourself. That's your part. You put every ounce of energy, make it your one goal and priority to grow in the same measure as the power I've given you to grow. That's your priority. Exert yourself. Try your hardest. And put these additives in your faith. And the word, by the way, add, means to lavishly supply. Isn't that beautiful? For this very reason, exert yourself, try your hardest, and lavishly supply all that you need. It would be like this. Let's say you have a very humble, meager home. And you're just barely able to pay the rent. And you've got a cardboard box for your coffee table. You've got a few throw pillows for your furniture. And somebody comes over that you know and he says, boy, this place could really use some improvement. Why don't you just decorate it to the max? You say, I don't have any money. He goes, no problem. Pulls out a wad of $100 bills. And there's thousands and thousands of dollars in his hand. And he says, you know what? Money is no object. I want you to go out and add to your house. Lavishly supply anything you want. And you're thinking, oh man, now I can get those 15-foot speakers for my stereo. I can get that new king-size waterbed. And he says, please spare no expense. That is that analogy in a spiritual sense. He says, here's your walk, here's your life. I've given you everything you need to be a victorious, strong, mature Christian. I've given it all. But add. Exert yourself to add and lavishly supply all of these things to your life. Folks, you know what the tragic part of this whole story is? Is that the children of Israel never got all that God promised. You say, wait a minute. Sure they did. They crossed over the Jordan. They got into the land of Israel. Yeah, but you know what? God promised 300,000 square miles. Even at the very pinnacle of the life as a nation under David and Solomon, they only took 30,000 square miles. That's a tenth of all that God promised. That's a tragedy. Now, there's a lot of us Christians who are satisfied with less than what God has given us as an inheritance. We have mislabeled success And we're looking for the wrong things. The ladder is up against the wrong wall. And we're not lavishly supplying to our faith. And we're not taking all that God has given us. I heard years ago of an Englishman. Left England. Came to the United States. His uncle was in charge of a five million dollar estate in England. And he died. And Scotland Yard went out on a search to find the nephew. He was the only living heir of the man who owned the estate. He went all over the world, couldn't find him. Traced him to Chicago, couldn't find him. Finally gave up the search. Several days later, the man was found dead, frozen to death, in the entryway of a cheap hotel. He didn't have enough money, a few bucks, to pay for a room in this cheap hotel, and yet he was the heir to a $5 million estate. He died rich, but he didn't know it. That is why Paul in the book of Ephesians prays that we as Christians would know who we are and what we have in Christ so that we wouldn't be praying for something we already own. 
It said of William Randolph Hearst that he had a fetish for fine artifacts, paintings, sculptures. And there was this one thing he just had to have, and he searched the world for it, couldn't find it. Sent his men out to find it, they couldn't find it. Months later, one of the guys came to him and said, Mr. Hearst, that piece, that painting that you were looking for, it's been in your storage house for about two years. You owned it, you didn't even know it. And I hear Christians saying, give me more power, give me more. You got it. You got to cooperate and add it to your faith. You've got all, everything that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. Let's just look at the bank book from time to time and see what we have. First of all, cooperation. Second of all, continuation. Look back in Joshua at verse 6. God says, Be strong and of good courage, for to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. In verse 7, Only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law. Not only cooperation, but continuation. That is, continuing in the strength of God. The reason I say that is that Joshua was obviously a strong person, wasn't he? He already had strength. He already had uh, fortitude. I mean, he was one of the guys who went into the land and spied it out with the other ten and came back, even though there were giants, and said, let's take the land. And the other ten were going, no, we can't. Joshua saying, sure we can. I trust the Lord. He already was strong. But God is telling a person who for 40 years has not failed God and who has already been strong to be strong and full of courage that you may observe to do according to all of the law. You see, up to this point, Joshua was only an assistant. Now he was in charge of leading two and a half million stubborn people on his own. And that takes courage. And so he's saying, Joshua, be courageous. Continue in the strength and the courage that's kept you going for all of these years. Be strong and very courageous that you can obey me. There's one thing, and here's the balance of all that God has given us. There's one thing many of us need today. It's good old-fashioned spiritual grit. Endurance. You and I have all known cream puffs who follow the Lord just as long and just as far as it's convenient and comfortable. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. The writer goes on to say in chapter 12, now that you see that we're encompassed with a great cloud of witnesses, let's lay aside every sin and weight that can ensnare us and run with endurance the race that is before us. Now, a lot of us are tempted to quit the race. We want to cooperate with God, but when it comes to the continuation, to continue to be strong, to continue to hang in there, you go, oh, We're tempted to quit the race. We've been on the track for a long time now. Let's just walk. Keep our shorts on and our Nikes on. We look like we're doing it. 
will assemble where all the track stars assemble every week. But we don't want to run. You know, Paul had gone through so many hassles. It really took guts and endurance for him to keep going. And in Acts chapter 20, he's on his way to Jerusalem. And everybody says, Paul, don't go. They're going to kill you. Paul says, Neither do I count my life dear to me that I might finish my race with joy. I don't care what they do to me. I want to make sure I cross the line. I'm going to endure. I'm going to continue. Look back at verse 7 now in Joshua. Be strong and courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it from the right hand or to the left, that you might prosper wherever you go. And verse 8, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night. That's the next step. Meditation. There are four keys to spiritual success in this chapter. Cooperation with God. Continuation in God's strength. Meditation on the written Word of God. It's through it. Joshua's life was to be governed by the written law of Moses. It was somehow in scroll or book form, and he was to meditate on it. That you may meditate in it, notice, day and night. One of the things that I pray for, for all of us, because I know my own propensity to lose my hunger for the Word, is I pray that God will continually give you and I a deep hunger for the things of God, a hunger for the Word of God. Peter said, as newborn babies, desire the pure milk of the Word that you can grow by it. Hunger and a thirst after righteousness. Because quite frankly, there are people who don't even read the Bible, let alone meditate on it. They just nibble on it. One of the greatest things you can do is not just read books about the Bible, but read the Bible. And I suggest you go through it once every single year. Read it. Know it. Meditate on it. Go through it. Let it become your love. That word meditate, found in verse 8, is found 25 times in the Old Testament. It means to ponder or to contemplate. Did you know that the root word speaks of an animal who would have a low groan and growl? That's what the Hebrew root word means for meditate. And the ancient peoples took it very literally. They would read the Bible and they would say it out loud to themselves very slowly and they would kind of, in a sing-song way, moan. And if you want to see what it's like, go to Jerusalem and look at the Wailing Wall sometime. And watch the fellows go back and forth and sing out the Word of God, meditating over it, mulling over it. Joshua, you're a military leader. You want to be successful? Meditate on the Word of God. Let it be your constant companion. Let it be in your mouth at all times. I think this thing of meditation is a lost art. To be quiet and silent in 1989 going on to 1990 almost seems like a joke for people. Because life is lived in fifth gear going 65 miles an hour. And you tell people, slow down, meditate, ponder the Word of God. And most people will say, what do you mean? I'm too busy for that. Well, listen, 
God will never call a person to a lifestyle that crowds out the needs of his soul. And if you're too busy for the meditation on the Word of God, I guarantee you, you are not where God wants you to be. Because God would never call you to that kind of a lifestyle. And chances are, if we don't meditate, it's because we're not hungry for it. Jesus said where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. If it was really important to us, we'd do it. And it was a priority for any kind of spiritual success for him. I'm thinking of a verse in Deuteronomy chapter 6. You don't have to turn to it. But God says, You will write this word on the doorposts of your house. When you go inside the house, when you go outside the house, you put it on your hand, you put it on your forehead. Wherever you go, the word of God should be there. Teach it to your children when you go out, when you come in. In other words, bombard yourself with Scripture. Today we are bombarded with messages. Wherever you go, there's cigarette ads, beer ads, movie ads, all sorts of garbage pouring into our brains. And he's saying, literally, let the Word of God be a billboard to you. Bombard yourself with it. Otherwise, garbage in, garbage out. You become what you eat. And so meditate upon the Word of God. And then finally, the fourth key We've covered three of them. Cooperation, continuation in God's strength, meditation, and the fourth one is action. I love that Nike commercial. It says, just do it. And that's what God says. Verse 8, you shall meditate on a day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous then you will have good success. You catch the flow. Here's my part. Here's your part. Cooperate. Continue in my strength. Meditate on the Word. And then do it. Beware of any kind of spiritual exercise that doesn't lead to action. Any kind of meditation that doesn't lead to doing something is really nothing. In the Hebrew culture, listening and meditating and knowing was the equivalent of doing. If it never led you to doing something, they really didn't call it knowledge or wisdom. That you may observe to do. It was Andrew Murray who said, meditation is holding the Word of God in your heart until it affects every phase of your life. So God says, meditate on it and then do it. Remember the story Jesus said? There were two types of builders. One built on the sand, one built on the foundation of rock. They each built a house. Both of them looked beautiful. The undiscerning eye from the distance couldn't tell the difference because the foundation is completely hidden by the house. But when the storms came, one house blew over. The other house stood firm because it had a solid foundation. And while people were thinking, hey, neat story, Jesus. He said, let me tell you what it means. The person who builds his house over here on the rock is the person who listens to my words, but he doesn't do them. Or he does them, excuse me. He obeys them. The person who's built his house on the sand, it falls, is the person who also listens to my word and underlines the promises. But he doesn't do them. There's no action. And that man's house will fall, Jesus said. And great will be the fall of it. 
As we close today, I'm going to ask every single one of you this morning to make a covenant with me before the Lord. Would you do that? You say, well, I don't know. What do you mean? Well, I'll promise you this. It will be a scriptural covenant. I won't make it up on my own. Now, be very still for a moment. and Listen to this covenant. It's a covenant that the king of Israel made before the Lord in Second Chronicles 34. Listen. Then the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all of his heart and all of his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. He's saying, Lord, this is King Josiah, I am committed to not only meditate on your word, but when I find that it tells me something to do, something to cut out of my life, something to add to my life, I'm going to do it. That's my covenant that I make with you. I'm not going to become a Bible scholar. I'm going to become a doer of the Word. That's a covenant that God made. And I'm asking all of us to make that before the Lord today. It's two parts. This is my promise. Cooperate. Add to your faith. Someone once said, the secret of success is to be like a duck. And that is smooth and unruffled on top, but paddling furiously underneath. Dr. Paul Rees said, if you want a picture of success as heaven measures it, of greatness as Christ views it, don't look for the blaring of the bands on Broadway. Listen, rather, for the tinkle of water splashing into a basin while God incarnate, in a humility that makes angels hold their breath, sponges the grime from off the feet of His undeserving disciples. That's success. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You are committed to our growth. You have promised us a land. You've also told us to get our feet dirty and to walk on it and to possess that which You have given to us. We as King Josiah commit ourselves this day to hearing and meditating and performing the words of the covenant. In Jesus' name.